Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you're having a great day. I am celebrating something huge. This is the 100th episode of Run This World with Nicole DeBoom. You know when you just love something so much that you don't realize how much time has gone by? Well, that is exactly how I feel about this podcast. I honestly wasn't sure what would happen when I started. I just knew that I wanted to do this, even though I had never listened to a podcast before I decided I was going to start mine. Um, and then I, I started reaching out to some amazing people to see if they'd come on my show, and they did. And the interviews were incredible. Um, my first episode, if you go all the way back to number one, was a short explanation of the podcast. So here it is. The general preface was that I would interview visionaries and people making change in the world in the hopes that it would inspire others and bring us all closer together. And I imagine people would listen during their weekend 5Ks or their, you know, running and fitness activities. So I plan the podcast around the average time it takes to run a 5K, which is 36 minutes and 38 seconds. But as you glance through my 100 episodes, you'll see that I end up getting closer to a 10K every time because I just can't cut the interview short when every single person has so much to offer. So I thought about the 100th episode and how epic it is, and here's what I decide to do. I am doing my first ever best of. It's a, a montage of 10 of my most powerful interviews, and I want to start by saying that every single guest on the show has been my favorite. I'm not kidding. If you're not in this uh, 100th episode, it doesn't mean that your episode was not absolutely off the charts. It was actually very hard for me to choose 10 episodes to feature. I would rather have just like chosen a snippet from every single one of 100 episodes, but that would have been so much work. Um, these are also not necessarily in my top 10 most listened episodes, but instead I chose episodes that cover a range of topics from a variety of people because that's who I want to invite to listen to this podcast, a variety of people who are interested in a range of topics. So today you'll hear a short snippet from each of these episodes with an explanation for why I chose them. Many of you are just getting started with Run This World podcast, um, and you're doing these crazy marathon sessions, listening to my incredible guests and probably doing drinking games to all the times I say, so here's the deal, <laughs> or whatever else. <laughs> well, for those of you getting started, or those of you who have been longtime listeners who have just like tried to figure out how to share this with your friends, 
This is a great episode to forward to anyone who isn't sure where to start because it's just a little bit of everything. Are you ready? I am so ready. I will. I think I'm, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to play these episodes in the order in which I interviewed them. So let's kick it off with episode six, Aaron Carson on Training for Life. Aaron is a former professional basketball player who in the last decade has become a huge fan of endurance sports, both personally and professionally. Uh, While chasing her own triathlon goals, she is also what I call the trainer to the Boulder Stars. See, she's not a pro, but she's helping a lot of pros and amateurs alike. Um, So what she does is she helps people improve their strength, flexibility, mobility, and so much more. And that's what you're going to hear from her today because she also understands the mind, mindset, and the holistic person Um, And that's the approach she takes in her training. She's also the owner of Boulder's Rally Sport Health and Fitness Center. And she's the founder of this awesome online app called EC Fit Boulder, which you should check out. Erin is one of the most knowledgeable women I've ever met about both physiology and the mental side of training and racing. And she's also simply put one of the best and greatest humans on the planet. Here we talk about what goals mean to Aaron. But how important are goals to you? Do you suggest people do set goals and then write them down, or what do you what do you do with that? Well, yes, I I, I like writing stuff down because a I think people have lost the art of penmanship, and that's fine motor control writing. So I, I <laughs> tend to true. write. I try to write something every day. Um, but I also think flexibility and go with the flow is really important. I, I think that when people um, forego a date night with their their spouse because they're so tired because they've been training so much or, you know, they don't go out with friends because they have to get their five-hour ride in. And, you know, I, I think that uh, I think we all need to be flexible. I think we need to have the ability to go with the flow and not be so rigid and, and stuff like that. So I think goals are really important. But even as I sat, I, I sat and talked to my coach today. We had our, our a meeting. That we we do that every few months just to do a ch- a check in. And you know, I'm really focused. Everything I do every day is about September fourth, the World Championships in Australia, for so many reasons. I mean, the biggest thing probably is it's because I turned fifty this year, which is a you a, already turned fifty. I did. How did I miss it? I I, I left. <laughs> it was, <laughs> but. But 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 everything I'm doing right now is, is about September fourth, and and it'll, I've given myself a big window to to achieve a goal, and and you know if I look at my numbers, then then analytically I I should be able to come in the top ten in the world in my age group, but then the reality is when I get there, I may or may not achieve that, and I just have me to answer to, you know, and I just have that I gave everything I could have given on that day and that's why I choose to race. Siri Lindley is my coach and she looked at me and she says, but you love racing, Aaron. And I was like, you know what, you know what, Siri, you know what, coach, I I really don't love racing. I, I like racing and I love it when they say go. 
but I don't like all the lead up to the race. It makes me nervous. It makes me want to throw up all the other bodily functions that happen before a race. I don't like racing that much. But when they say go and I just start moving and I, the joy of movement and challenging myself to that understanding of threshold. And so, you know, on September 4th, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go as hard as I can in the swim. And there's always a place at the end of the swim where I go, I did the best I could. Let's put that up behind me. Now I'm going to get on the bike and I'm going to ride for a few hours and somewhere in the bike, in the last half of the bike, I'm going to say, you know what, Aaron, you've done the best you could. And then I'm going to put that bike down and I'll put my running shoes on and the exact same thing's going to happen in the run. And I'm going to run down the end and I'm going to be like, you know what, Aaron, you did the best you could. And if I come in the top 10, great. If I come in the top 20, that doesn't matter either because my foundation of my success now isn't beating other people. It's about doing the best I can do. So I want to instill that in other people as well. It doesn't matter. Every There's so many winners in a race. So if you can finish and you can say, I did the best I could, then then I just think that that, that you win. You know, that that's winning. Episode 24, Kara Burns from prison to 26.2. I first met Kara as she sat on the floor of the Skirt Sports Warehouse at the kickoff meeting for our 2015 Running Start program. Kara was fairly fresh out of prison at that time after being incarcerated for selling drugs across state lines and as she's come out and was going through sort of a rehabilitation and re-entry, um, she had been instructed to make new associations on her path to staying clean and sober from her former life as a meth addict. She was scared, she was nervous, and I will never forget how she described that first meeting. She said that when she showed up, she thought, oh my God, I made a mistake. These are not my people. I do not think I can do this. But she hung around and after everyone went around the room and shared their stories of why they were there, something clicked for her and she realized that we may not all have the same story, but we are all the same in so many ways. We've all struggled and we all want to change. And I'm so glad she hung in there. This is one of my most highly listened episodes ever, and I think you'll understand why in a moment. Everybody knows the title of this podcast is From Prison to 26.2, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's, so there's a story there. So let's, let's, go, let's go back in time and talk about who you were before this big kind of event that happened in your life, which was going to prison. Who were you before that? How would you have defined yourself? How old were you? You know, what were you going through in your life? Again, a word that popped into my brain when you just asked me that was mediocre. I lived a mediocre life. I didn't try too hard at things. If it was too hard, I would give up. I just continually looked for the easy way out. I first started using drugs and alcohol in my late teens, and that progressed to a meth addiction uh, in my early 20s, around 22 years old is when I first started um, shooting meth. And I continued to do that for several years and got caught um, and did some jail time. I was pregnant and I had um, my beautiful daughter at that time and I got clean. I was able to get clean. So Kara, I mean, how does someone get into meth? 
Right. I don't even, I mean, I live a different life, but I don't know how you would even get to that point in your life where this becomes a possibility. Sure, sure. In my situation, I um, I already had already struggled with alcohol, and it was kind of a progressive next step. My uh, sister actually did it, and so I associated, uh, you know, that it would be okay. I was like, well, she's doing it. It'll it'll be fine. And I did it for the first time. And it's one of those kinds of things that you can't just do once. And I immediately was like, oh, well, this is great. This makes me forget all of my problems. And I don't have to worry about anything. Let's go do this. And so all of my responsibilities and pretty much life and my authentic self fell away. Mm. All of that, you know, started to just be drowned out with drugs and alcohol. So, okay, let's talk about alcohol for a minute, because I shared with you, too, that I stopped drinking about 10 years ago. And uh, so I understand having problems with, you know, addictions. And I've often felt like alcohol could be a gateway type drug for people. They don't usually just start and have like a meth addiction, you know, for instance, they're going to do alcohol or maybe they're going to do marijuana or whatever it is. Right. Is that something that has crossed your mind? So I think that there's two types of people. I think that there's folks that can drink and they can just drink. And then there's the type of person that I am and I can't just drink and I, I can't just, you know, have one drink because that will take me to doing meth within a period of time. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week, but at some point it's just progressive for me, mm-hmm. period. Yep. So I've had people ask me if, uh, cause I haven't drank or done drugs in over uh, five and a half years. And I've had people ask me, well, what if you, you know, what if you could have a drink today? Can't you have a drink today? You know what? I've done so much work on myself. I might be able to, but I am unwilling to find out. That's a risk I'm unwilling mm-hmm. to take. I've, I've come too far. I've worked too hard and I've created this amazing life that having a drink is, there's no way I'm going to, you know, that does, it pales in comparison to anything that I've got going today. Episode 37, Emily Harvey, amputee athlete on rocking your differences. Emily's leg was amputated when she was two because she had a condition called fibular hemimelia, I think. (laughs) I think I got it right. Um, Hemimelia, which means she was missing her fibula bone and her left leg was substantially shorter than her right. So Emily grew up not really knowing any different. And she even asked her grandma at some point when she got her first prosthesis because she simply believed that everyone wore a fake leg. Um, today, she's a disability rights attorney. She's the founder of nonprofit Limb 359. And most recently, and after this interview, she became an Ironman finisher. Here's Emily's take on some frequently used words in her world. You know, so there's disabled. The other big word that gets tossed around a lot is inspiration. And I have kind of complex feelings about the word inspiration. And ultimately what it boils down to is I think that words can have different connotations based on how we own them. Mm. So 
like there's this whole, you know, is it an amputee or is it someone who with limb loss? So I kind of embrace the amputee phrase and I claim to be an amputee rather than a person with limb loss because I think that if I call myself an amputee and people see me in a positive light, that can bring a positive light on that word. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, as far as disabled, it's actually a question no one's asked me before. <laughs> um, you know, I think that everybody has differences and coming from my legal background, every word has kind of a legal definition. So the word disability for me in my you know, career has a different meaning than mm-hmm. it might have when I'm, you know, doing sports or just as a person in general. I do want to talk about the word inspiration, though, if you don't mind. Let's do it. Into that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that. This is perfect. I'm curious what your angle is going to be here. <laughs> yeah. So there's this woman named Stella Young, um, and she's amazing. She she passed away, but she had a YouTube or a TED talk about inspiration porn and how she used a wheelchair and people would always call her inspirational just kind of for living her own life. And she didn't like that. She said, I'm just living my life. You know, who are you to feel good about yourself because you called me an inspiration? And I don't exactly take Stella's view and I'm not going to really dig into her view because I think she says it better and those who are interested can certainly Google yeah. Stella Young. Yeah. But I I parse it out between inspiration and motivation. That's how I've settled in my mind. And the difference I see is that inspiration in my mind is when someone says, oh, look at that girl who's running a half marathon, she's missing her leg. That's such an inspiration. I feel so warm and fuzzy inside. Motivation is when somebody says, look at that girl with a prosthetic leg running a half marathon. I'm going to go out and walk 30 minutes tomorrow. They actually take action Mm -hmm. on what they have seen and taken away from that experience. And I don't know that that's actually how the words are defined in the dictionary, but that's how I've defined them in my mind. Let's define them and that <laughs> way. I love that. That's how, that's how I like to think of it. So if somebody, and when I did the half Ironman in Coeur d'Alene last year, I started right behind the pro women. So all of the fast age groupers were right on my tail. So I got passed by hundreds of people on the bike. I don't think I passed one single person. And I think if I had to average it out, every third person said something to me. Either you're an inspiration, you go girl, you know, and I'm just trying to race my race and all these people are trying to talk to me. <laughs> so was it, I, I was really curious about that actually. Um, is that is that a positive thing for you when people see you out there? And this literally, I know people think this. They go, well, if she can do it and she's got one freaking leg, then <laughs> I can do it. So you're used almost as like a benchmark for other people it gives them inspiration. It might motivate them too. Like, is that okay? There's, you can't really change it. People are going <laughs> to think that way no matter what. Yeah, it is okay. It's just, I always feel obligated to say something back to them if they say something to me and they don't realize that I'm saying this potentially hundreds of times in the case of mm-hmm. being on the bike for four hours, being passed like a lot. So Okay, we might just have to work on your bike speed. (laughs) I'm working on it, believe me. Um, But 
<laughs> what I settled on, and I think that I should probably get um, paid by the band U2, but I kept saying U2. And it wasn't even always appropriate in response to whatever they said to me, but I was at least saying something <laughs> back to them, and I wasn't having to think about what an appropriate response was, because that well, takes away from my, like, my race and my experience. Episode 41. Siri Lindley, world champion person on getting out of your head and into your heart. Siri, Siri, I've known Siri for a long time. Um, Siri was the best short course triathlete in the world for two years, despite the fact that she could barely swim a lick before she started the sport in the mid 90s. I'm not kidding. Um, after she retired from racing, Siri gravitated to coaching because she is innately called to give much more than she takes. She became an incredible coach, guiding many athletes to their potential, including world champions like she was. But she didn't get to this place without her own personal struggles, which ultimately meant finding a way to love, embrace, and accept who she is first. Throughout my life, another theme became, I need to make myself feel safe. I need to realize that I'm my own biggest supporter. I'm my own protector. I'm my own, like it's me and me against the world. So I need to learn to love myself and respect myself and take care of myself and not depend on anyone else um, wow. to move forward in life. And that's a really advanced understanding or way of thinking when you're not even a teenager, you know, and maybe you weren't thinking about it that way at the time, but there was something in it that you just knew you had to build yourself up. Yeah. And that took time. You know, it started out, I had intense obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, oh, wow. you try and find. How did it manifest? Oh, just so, you oh, know, you gotta, like, you gotta I, I, yeah, I got to talk. I mean, when you hear about like turning the yeah. lights on and off until you feel safe or, or yeah. tapping on yeah. things until you get a thought out of your head, like I did all of that and it made me feel crazy and it made me feel out of control and it made, and, and when I say that I got over these things, I'm talking about over like 15, 20 years. Yeah. I'm not talking about I was 10 and at 11 I'd cured myself of this disorder. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it got so intense or, or saying a prayer over and over in my head, please God, let me be okay. Please God, bring my mom home safe, please. And over and over like 20 million times. Yeah. I know it sounds crazy, but I also know that a lot of people listening can relate in yes, some way, shape or form. They can. And you think it's a temporary uh, fix for yourself because it somehow makes you feel by saying it enough that you're going to be okay. But eventually I reached a point and this wasn't until college where I thought, I feel like a crazy person and I feel out of control and I need to get a grip. I was too afraid to talk to anyone about it, but I decided, I said, Siri, like, and, I, and now I'm going to sound crazy because I'm talking to myself, but I said, Siri, like, we have to live together every second of every hour of every day for the rest of our lives. We have got to sort this crap out. We've got to figure this shit out. Like, we can't keep doing this because this craziness is not going to lead to anything good. And so I decided that I was going to start working at mm. um, stopping this behavior. And ultimately I did by um, replacing it with the right kind of thinking and staying out of my head. Um, the biggest shift was wanting, having the intention of living my life from a place of love and not 
from a place of fear because I lived from a place of fear in everything I did. And when I made that shift in my head, I decided I am going to appreciate everything I have in my life that makes me happy, appreciate every opportunity I have and live in gratitude, which is basically love. Love is gratitude and live from a place of I'm doing what I love and I'm going to put my heart and soul into this and let the cards fall where they may. I'm just going to give it all I have and appreciate the opportunity. And and so, that shift saved me, really. So when people are relating to this and they're hearing the voices in their head and they can't turn it off, what advice do you have for them to make that shift? Is that you have to understand that you're in your mind and the mind is a, it's a brilliant place when it's focused on the right things, but it also can be a very dangerous place that makes you feel crazy and you have to stay out of there because it is not a, an effective place to be. Come back to your heart and ask yourself the question, whatever it is that you're freaking out about, like, okay, why are you freaking out about this? What's the worst that can happen? What is the story that you're telling yourself in regards to this? And then ask yourself, is this really true? Um, mm. Is this really going, inevitably going to happen? Um, is this, and, and then you ask yourself, and I learned a lot of this, you know, I was been reading Tony Robbins's stuff since college oh, and yeah. he was a huge um, influence on my life because what he spoke, his words just resonated deep within my soul. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, what if, what if the opposite were true? Whatever you're worrying about happening, what if the opposite was true, which is obviously a good thing happening? What if you focus on that? How does that make you feel? What will that lead to? And then you realize how much better that story feels and it becomes a shift. Mm -hmm. um, but the biggest thing is get out of your head, get into your heart. Um, you know, where, where focus goes, energy flows, which means if I'm going to focus on, oh my God, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, most likely I'm going to lose. If I focus on, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to, I'm going to finish strong, I'm going to finish strong, I'm going to finish strong, most likely I'm going to finish strong. So really be disciplined. We're also disciplined, especially athletes in our lives, you know, waking up and, getting our training done and taking care of the kids, whatever it is, but we're so disciplined. Use that same discipline for your mindset, your thinking. Don't allow yeah. those, mm -hmm. those self-sabotaging thoughts to take over. Come back to your heart, come back to gratitude, come back to you know, the stuff that is actually gonna help you and not hurt you. Episode 50, Colleen Cannon on chickens, watermelons, and why women will save the earth. Colleen Cannon is an incredible person. She's a friend of mine. My only regret is not finding her sooner in my life. She's a former professional triathlete and the founder of Women's Quest. Before retreats were a thing, before women's only was a thing, before the internet even, there was Colleen Cannon. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, she was one of the most prolific triathletes. She's a world champion. She's a rock star. Um, Colleen discovered her athletic calling early on, but what she discovered later in life is that she knew she needed to create a way to bring women together for self-care, for self-love, for empowerment. And she also realized at some point that ultimately women would save the planet. Here we talk a little bit about that epiphany. Okay, so I was in Boulder 
again. And I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and they were having an, a Native American gathering. Um, and it just happened to be just a few blocks from my house. So I was living on Spruce Street, and they were having it in one of the churches there. Okay. And the Hopi Indians were giving a prophecy for 2000, for the year 2000. So this is the mm-hmm. 1992. And I'm out for a run and I see this thing happening. I'm like, I definitely have to go and be a part of this. And because it was full, they escorted me down to the front and I had to sit on the, you know, right near the front. And I was like, this is going to be interesting. (laughs) So they were giving the prophecy of the planet and what was going to happen to the earth and the human race. And it was not good. You know, they're basically talking about the resources that we have and um, the negative impact and what was going to be happening. And I was super sad about that because as an athlete, you're out there riding your bike all of the time. And right. I, I had already moved from California to Colorado because of the air quality and the water quality out there. It was just too bad. It was really bad for breathing. And anyway, so I, um, at the end of this, I end up sitting down. I'm still there. I'm kind of in shock. And seven of the Hopi Indians come around me and I stand up. I'm thinking I'm in trouble or something. And they said, women will save the planet. And so they say it three times. They said, women will save the planet. And by the last time, they said, women will save the planet. I'm like kind of in tears already, and I get like goosebumps, and I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm thinking, well, I'm a triathlete. I have to think about my next massage, my granola that I'm going to eat, my bike maintenance, and my training. And I'm like, well, why are you telling me this? I, as I was thinking in my head, and I'm like, well, I'll go try and be a better person. you know. And I left. And um, about six weeks later, I'm in the, the race in... Um, we had a national championship in Lake Mead in Las Vegas. And I'm in that race and it just hit me. It's like, I have got to do something more. I've got to be able to help and give back. And there was a Dairy Queen and it was Karen Smyers and I were duking it out on the bike. I remember I was climbing up the hill and I just like, I saw the Dairy Queen and I just pulled off into the Dairy Queen. And I pulled off, Karen kept going and there was a camera that kind of followed me in there. And they were like, what are you doing? You can't get aid. I'm like, I'm done. I have to do something else. I have to do something well, to, first to be I able have to, to give have back. A ice cream, and then I have to do something <laughs> else. <laughs> first, I have to have an ice cream because I made it this far. Oh my gosh! It I, was. It happened during a race. Yes, I stopped the race because it was just like the flip of a switch. Wow. It was like on off. I could feel myself. The politics of the race were getting to me. People were talking about you have to have your helmet on this way and not that way, and people were very rude. You know, the the sport had gotten in to be very cutthroat at that time. And it has moved since then into better phases. But at that time, well, people it, were just getting managers and money was very important and sponsors were very important. The things that drew you to triathlon were no longer there for you. Right. And a sign came at exactly this time. And I knew I could, I sensed it, I knew it. And I pulled off. So I had a pretty good intuition. And about a week or two later, I was going to um, Hind, which was a clothing company Mm -hmm. in Northern California in San Luis Obispo. And Greg Hind was a big friend of mine. And I helped him with his four women only line and helped him with his clothes. And he said, "Um, well, what are you going to do now? And we're having an editor retreat this weekend. And, you know, I was part of that. And so I told the editors, well, I'm going to start a retreat for women. And they said, well, what's the name? And I'm like, well, I have to tell you tomorrow because <laughs> it was a three-day event. You didn't even know. No, I didn't even know. So I, I'm like, well, it's kind of a quest. It's like a women's quest. It's a quest to find the, the, most, the most beautiful self that you can be or your most empowered self. And through you know, doing sport, through using your mind, and it's a spirit-filled journey, basically. So I wanted it to be mind, body, and spirit. And so they said, well, we're going to start writing about it. And it just happened to be 12 of the major magazines. And they started writing about it. And then people started calling me because we didn't have internet. We didn't have 
we didn't have anything that I could have told anybody, like, I'm going to do this, and that it would happen. And I was really fortunate that Nike kind of stepped on board and Hind was there. And they said, well, we still want to support you in doing this. And this was well before it was cool to do yoga, well before it was cool to do meditation or the physical and the fact that I combined them all because that's how I had been racing. You know, I had used all of that in my sport too. You And there was this kind of save the planet side. Absolutely. So I knew that if I could kind of spark or soul spark the, the feminine generation, the females that they would pass down to their children and their husbands. And even at that time, it hadn't been documented, but the women were the ones that were spending the money. Mm. They were the ones that actually knew what to do and where to put their focus. And if I could do that, then it would trickle down to the planet. Episode 67, Janelle Smiley faced her fears and came to life. Janelle is one of the most well-known climbers, skiers, and mountaineers of our era. Um, As a multiple national and North American ski mountaineering champion, which, by the way, I didn't even really know what ski mountaineering was. I had to look it up. She's also a first descender of epic proportions and a first ascender of even more epicness. (laughs) Um, With all of those accolades, Janelle is surprisingly low-key and ultra insightful through her trials and tribulations literally things that she faced on the edges of the world hanging on cliffs and crevasses uh, Janelle has developed a profound respect for the human condition and she's dedicated her life to helping others explore deep into their souls as she continues to explore deep into hers well I believe there's two types of fear. There's rational fear and there's irrational fear. Humans were not designed to hang off cliffs. Humans were not designed to walk up to cliffs and then lean off them backwards and go down them with ropes or what have you. So it's it's a rational fear to be afraid of heights. And then in your circumstance, depending on where you are in that moment, is your fear rational or irrational? Make that decision or distinction. And then the next question I would ask is, what inside of me is so afraid? Well, and what if the answer is, I think I'm going to fall down the hill and die? Well, and like, then I think, and so, and that's, and that's where I think you need to bring the rational, irrational. Are you eight feet back from the cliff? Are you tied into a rope? Are you standing in a skyscraper with windows? I mean, this fear can come up in many different ways, right? Standing in a skyscraper, looking out a window and having this, this visceral feeling in your body and your, your palms are sweating and you know, you start to breathe fast, are you actually going to fall out that window at that moment? That's a really good point. And so when you, you know, when people share with you that maybe this is one of their issues, how do you help them overcome it? Is it emotional, mental? Can you train to overcome it? It depends if you're willing. (laughs) But yes, I believe you can. And it's, we start simple and we start with the mental side of it. And once we start to understand and, and basically we come up to that, that fear barrier. So you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And then at some point walking up to that cliff, you, you stop and you freak out. Whether it's 12 feet, whether it's 2 feet, whether it's your toes hanging over the edge, it's different for everybody. And so you come to that point and you're like, okay, here's my fear boundary. What am I going to do? I'm going to recognize it. I see it. I acknowledge it. I accept it. And now I get to decide if I want to move through it or I want it to paralyze me and keep me from ever going any closer. 
And I think that's a really, and that's what I use for any sort of fear, whether it's fear of heights or fear of the unknown or fear of spiders. It doesn't really matter, but it's recognizing where that barrier is and then making an active choice whether you want to walk through it or not. So for instance, uh, you know, uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable conversations, right? Difficult conversations, whether you have to have one with your boss or your spouse or whatever. Fear of all of these things are kind of leading us to how would we handle a situation like this, right? There's a fear of the unknown. There's a boundary you have to decide if you're going to walk through or not walk through. There's also what you talked about with your story of being benighted that it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be. What advice do you have for people who know they have to have a difficult conversation and they're not sure how to get themselves through it? Well, I think it's a decision on how you want to live, how you want to move and walk through this life. Do you want to live a life in fear or do you want to live a life in love or in truth? And I think with every thought leads to every action, which leads to different outcomes. And so if you're going into a situation where you're going to have a hard conversation, you're like, okay, am I having this hard conversation because I'm afraid or am I having this hard conversation because I need to speak my truth? You know, and kind of see what the underlying purpose or the underlying intention is of this conversation. Or maybe you just clearly want more money or you don't like the work situation, the work environment. But if you're feeling your heart start to pump, your voice get a little shaky, obviously there's fear there. And whenever that shows up in my world, I know it's something I have to face. And I want to live a life that has as little fear as I possibly can because I don't think fear is, for the most part, beneficial. And so anytime I come up against that fear, I will actively choose to go do that thing that I'm afraid of. Episode 68. 13 years ago, Erica McDonald had two months to live. At age 21, Erica was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. and She survived. Down the road, she was diagnosed again, this time with aggressive uterine cancer she survived. Years later, she had a full mastectomy after finding suspicious tissue in her breast. She survived. She is the epitome of a survivor. Today, she thrives with her three adopted children and her pro triathlete entrepreneur husband, Chris McDonald. And she lives open to what life will continue to bring with love and appreciation for what she does have. This is an incredible episode that everyone should listen to to help bring both perspective and appreciation for your own lives. The crazy thing at the time, they they didn't think I'd need chemo. So for about two weeks, I didn't think I'd need chemotherapy and I thought I was, you know, spared and then I went to the hospital for a follow-up and you know, I always had long dark hair like I do now and I uh, remember looking around and seeing so many bald people and I thought, next time I come, I better put my hair up because it might hurt their feelings you know, for people that don't have hair to see somebody with long hair. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting across from my doctor and he's saying, Erica, you know, we think you need to have chemotherapy, you know, um, it's going to be tough. You'll have six rounds. Um, you're going to lose all your hair and your eyebrows, your eyelashes. And I was just like, wait, what? Um, I was so scared. 
um, each step is just like a blow. Yes. You know? And and it's and you know what it is? It's the fear of the unknown. Mm. Um I I had I had never had a panic attack until before my first chemotherapy. And I was just like my heart was racing and I was panicked. I kept thinking I would just want to pull the needle out because you start reading you know, all these things. I was I had read Lance Armstrong's book about all the awful stuff he was coughing up and all this and I, I, I was just like terrified of what was going to happen. And it was, it was definitely tough. I mean, uh, I was there for seven hours. I'd get out super huge. Um, for the first day or second day, I, for the first couple of days, I'd just be tired. By the third day, I was just nonstop vomiting. It was, it was brutal. Um, and one of the drugs they gave me actually settled in my joints to where I had a hard time walking. Um, and sometimes I'd have to get help walking. And it was really uh, intense chemotherapy. But, you know, I did it, lost my hair, and uh, went and bought some fabulous wigs. <laughs> <laughs> we like wigs. <laughs> There's something good that comes out of everything. Get you some different hair colors yeah, and styles. And- totally. So, um, no, it was, it, was, it was tough, but I got past it. So I had, you know, um, a big old two-year cancer-free party and then um, a five-year cancer-free party. My doctors were really good about monitoring me just because it was such a fluke. Um, and so that kind of left, we laugh that I'm a cat, so I, I don't know which life this was, but <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a test and they found a polyp and um, I, I didn't feel comfortable having a polyp and um, fought with my doctor in my hometown about it and said, you know, please just take this out. And he said, no, you're having a knee jerk reaction. Um, why would they say that? I don't understand why a doctor would be conservative after what you've already been through. You know, I think it was an ego thing looking back because he hadn't been my doctor through my first cancer. And I said, look, you know, I, and that is one thing um, to anybody who's listening, you have to be your own advocate no one else is going to do it for you if you feel that something is off you know for me i i i wouldn't say i felt something was off and that's the craziest thing if i hadn't have you know had this test i was i was actually having a test to find out if i could get pregnant so i had an hsg a histiosalpingogram and that's basically you know they insert some you know you go to the radiologist they insert something into your uterus they shoot the dye and they see if you know it's flowing properly so through my first cancer i'd lost my right ovary and my right fallopian tube so i had my left side left and um, i just wanted to see if it worked and were you in a relationship at that point i was i was and um and so as the doctor was leaving the room he told the tech he said um, take one more image, would you? And when he said that right away, I, I felt something. I'm like, why does he want to, like, just the way he said it made me nervous. When I left, I actually cried, um, in my car because I felt something weird by the way he said it. But then I went out of the country for two weeks. And when I came home, I had those messages on my phone over and over saying, Erica, you need to call us, Erica. So I called them and they said, look, you have a polyp. It's probably no big deal. 
And then I kind of got into an argument with my doctor because I said, look, just take it out. And he wouldn't. So finally, I called MD Anderson and they said, well, just come up here. We'll see you. And ironically, they told me the same thing. It's probably just a polyp. It'll go away on its own. Don't worry about it. And luckily, because they know me, um, they said, okay, if it's bothering you that much, we'll just do a DNC and take it out. So I went in on a Thursday for the surgery and um, was home on Friday resting. And the phone rang and it was my doctor. And she said, hey, Erica, how are you feeling? And I said, you know, I'm a little bit sore, but I'm okay. And she said, "Um, so who are you with? Are you alone? And when she said that, I knew. um, And my mom happened to be walking by with a big handful of towels. And I said, no, my mom's actually right here. And my mom must have known too, because I just never forgot. She sat down on the bed and the towels just fell. And um, and she said, Erica, I'm calling you to tell you that it wasn't a polyp. You were right. It was, um, it's uterine cancer and it is extremely aggressive. She was, she said, I've never seen a tumor like this. I, I called in several colleagues and um, we need, this was on a Friday. She was like, we need you back in Houston on Monday. Um, and you're gonna have to have a hysterectomy. Um, so I, I didn't, so at this point, once again, I'm like, wait, what's going on? And this is over the phone. And, and she said, Erica, do you know what this means? And I said, what, I have cancer. And she said, and you will never have biological children. You know, we have to take everything. And honestly, Nicole, that was what upset me more than anything. Episode 70, Mark Michael on loss, grief, and becoming whole again. Mark is one of those people who you just want to hang out with all day because of the way he makes you feel. He's a former pastor and youth addictions counselor who today manages a nonprofit and coaches high school cross country. Uh, 14 years ago, Mark dealt with the unimaginable loss of his daughter Kelsey in a tragic car accident. Over time, he's found a way to move forward through the grief and continue to live fully while honoring his daughter at the same time. Yeah, when we arrived at the hospital, they told us that she was uh, unconscious and ventilated and back in uh, radiology getting a CAT scan, you know, and at that point, my, my first thought was, well, they don't give CAT scan to dead kids, so this is a good sign. And um, how, you know, how did things progress from there? Well, once they, they got done with the initial assessments and, and the tests, you know, eventually that evening, they moved her up to critical care, and we got to go back and see her, you know, five minutes every hour, and you know, Kathy, my wife is a nurse and, and with my background, um, we were doing everything we could think to try to get some kind of reaction out of her, you know, tickling her arms and feet, pinching her, blowing on her eyes, blowing in her ears, talking to her, praying, begging, you know, give us some kind of response here. Uh, and as the night wore on, you know, we, we began to get the sense that, um, that she wasn't doing well. And probably about four o'clock in the morning or so, the, the physician that was taking care of her came to the, to the waiting room and, and said, you know, you need to know she's not doing well neurologically. And when we went back to the room right after he told us that, uh, the nurses just put chairs on either side of her bed. And, and so, you know, that five-minute rule is gone now. Um, you know, we could spend as much time as we, we wanted to spend. Um, so we began to have those conversations that uh, 
parents never think they they're going to have or that they know they don't want to have. You know, how long do we hang on to hope? How long do we wait? And and we decided that if if they tell us there's no hope of recovery, that we weren't going to drag the the process out. You know, we would we would um, we would let her her uh, go off the ventilator. And then the next question we asked each other is is if we were still okay with her being an organ donor. We knew she had signed her driver's license to be an organ donor. She had made that decision herself. And we we just wanted to check in with each other and uh, make sure we still supported that decision as parents. And we, we both did. Um, and, and we had a conversation of, you know, we, we knew statistics, we knew trends, we knew that, that the death of a child is hard on a family and a marriage. And we committed to that no matter what, we're going to stay together, we're going to keep the family together. And if we can make any good come out of Kelsey's death, we were going to do that. Episode 87, Kara Goucher redefines herself. Kara is one of the most popular distance runners in the sport today. She's a two-time Olympian who successfully went from middle distance running to the marathon, earning tons of fans and tons of accolades along the way. Um, The cool thing about her is that she has publicly discovered her confidence as she's faced sometimes controversial trials and tribulations of being an athlete in the spotlight. In this snippet of my most highly listened episode ever, we talk about her decision to get pregnant the process she went through in the first few months after having her son, Colt. I could tell he was disappointed, (laughs) but he never wanted me to be like regretful that Mm -hmm. I missed something. And I kept thinking I'm ready. I just have to do this and then I'll be ready. And then that didn't happen. I said, well, I just, if I win Boston, then I'll be ready. And then I got third at Boston. I'm like, well, if I win a medal at world champs, then I'll be ready. And I didn't win a medal at world champs, but finally it was just like, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm tired of searching for this happiness through a result. And I always wanted to be a mom. And so it was just like, I mean, I didn't get what I wanted out of world champs. I know everybody thought I was going to turn around and run New York. Everybody thought it. Even my coach thought it. And even Adam thought it. He was like, are you sure you're not going to want to run New York? And I was like, and we were in Berlin. And I was like, I'm done. And I knew I was going to have to go through some fertility stuff. And I had brought the medication with me. And he couldn't believe it. I was just like, I'm starting this. So why would you have to go through that? So I was, when I was younger, not younger, like young, young. But when I was, when Adam and I got married, I went in and I I know that I had, like, don't have this my hormones don't work the same way and I have polycystic ovarian syndrome and it's okay. turned now to disease. And so I knew there was going to be some challenges, um, but I just never believed that I wouldn't get pregnant. I mean, I just like always believed it would happen. So we had, uh, so we started treatment right away and we had one, so we were doing like injectables, um, but we didn't do IVF and we did one round where we got pregnant, lost it. And then we had couple other rounds where it just didn't take which was really disappointing um and then finally the doctor said i think you might want to think about ivf and so we said okay so we went to the classes and we got ready for it in the meantime i was still doing drugs um to try to get pregnant and he said well you have one egg it's not that great but i would hate to waste it what the hell and that's cold (laughs) 
And you know what's so funny is when you're going through fertility treatment, everyone's like, just don't think about it. Don't think about it. But how can you not? You're giving yourself shots. And it's like, you know, you're you're going to the doctor every two days and having like a vaginal ultrasound. Oh, my God. It's your life. Your life is literally built around it. So it's like, how could you not think about it? But I think that's what happened is we went to Minnesota for Christmas. Um, I knew we were going to start IVF and I really kind of just chilled out. And then, and then it happened. It finally happened. I mean, how's this? You got one egg. It's not that great. Yeah, you're like, like, I'll take it. Yeah, he was like, I think we've kind of missed the window, but um, like it was already a little bit too big. But he's like, it's worth a shot. We could trigger shot it, and you could we could try tomorrow. And I'm like, well, okay. And then when they called, they would always call and say, well, I wish we had better news. I wish we had better news. And when they called, she was like, how are you doing? And right away, the hair on my arm just oh, stood up. Oh, I just up. got it right now. Because I was just like, <laughs> that's not how they lead these calls, you know? Like, they're they're telling women, dev- like, devastating oh. news. And I was like, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> and she was like, well, I have good news. And I just couldn't believe it. I just oh couldn't believe God. it. Oh, my God. And so all this time, like, there's so many things, though, about getting pregnant and having kids that just drive me crazy. The whole, like, there's never a good time to be ready. And you're like, yeah, there is. There's better times than not better times, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. Right? Or, uh, come on, just have a kid. It'll be the best thing you ever do. And then you have a kid, and those same people are like, oh, my God, isn't it exhausting? And you're <laughs> so, like, you told me to you're have like, a you kid. You told me to do this. Yeah. yeah. But, like, I mean, this is, there's all kinds of miracles that happen, right? I mean, having a baby, I felt like that. Getting pregnant was a miracle. Because think about your body. You're yeah. a superhero compared to most normal people, <laughs> right? In in running and in sports, right? When you have a baby, you become like truly a superhero. I felt like having Colt made me, I mean, I still have confidence issues, but it was the, like I would always just sit back, take anything. I would take any abuse or any whatever. I hate confrontation. And after I had Colt, it just like changed me. I was just like... No, actually, I'm not going to take that. And no, actually, that isn't right. And and I don't know if it's the hormones or if it's just like the love of protecting this person and wanting to make sure you do everything you can right. But yeah, I mean, like I was running like 100 miles a week and nursing him and racing and running 6830. And I mean, that was the one time I actually had like an anxiety attack because I was running on the treadmill at home on an Ultra G and I had gone to see my doctor and she was like, something has to give. You're running so much you're nursing like you're you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown you know like something has to give and poor adam comes downstairs to our gym and he's like how was your meeting with dr barrett and i was like it was horrible (laughs) (laughs) started freaking out and i was like in this bag thank god or i probably would have fallen off the treadmill and he was like okay i think it's time to wean like you can't do everything that's you know? true you were trying to actually be a superhero yeah and it was, i was <laughs> you were i was trying. like i'm gonna do everything right yeah. colt's gonna have everything he needs and i'm gonna also i'm gonna do this and like there i was having some issues with my sponsor so i had to get back to racing and so it was like i just have never felt so much pressure in my life honestly Episode 97, Myrna and LaToya Uncensored. Myrna Valerio and LaToya Snell are both multi-time guests on the podcast. Uh, They live in a powerful, loud, unapologetic world of self-love and barrier breaking. They were recently in Boulder at the same time, so Myrna suggested we do a dual show, which turned out to be absolutely amazing and inspirational, at times raunchy and just all-around fun. 
um, I decided to end the 100th episode with their final nuggets. The question I ask every guest who comes on the show. Are you ready? If you could leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? So we're going to leave our listeners with one final nugget from each of you mm. to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way. Oh, go me We're going to fight to go first oh, on God. this one. Okay. <laughs> um, my advice. Uh, my advice to anyone who is looking like people are always looking for like this special answer of how do you get started started with something um how do you get started with running how do you get started with going to the gym how do you get over the um gym anxiety consistency is the key you don't have to like people will get caught up with this illusion of oh my god i signed up for this couch to 5k plan and what if i can't run completely through or how can i start if you cannot run how about you start walking um like simple it like dumb it down to your level and i mean and i don't mean that in a like a rude way seriously like instead of looking at it as oh i this week says that i have to start running you know for a half a minute and then i have to walk if you cannot do it keep moving and that's really metaphorical for any aspect mm. of fitness keep moving keep going it even if it when it comes down to gym and it translates into those gym fears of i'm scared that everybody's staring at me if you have to find a coping mechanism where you have headphones headphones are sometimes like my my cape where mm. i can tune out the entire world and i don't play music mm. i literally put on these big overproof headphones because it's like a barrier of telling people stay away Mm. Um, they know that I'm in my zone, that I'm mm. focused. And even if they tap you, cause it's going to be a day that someone is going to try to correct your form. It happens to us women all the time. Mm. And I'm pretty sure there's a couple of men out there, especially, you know, plus size guys who have their own insecurities, but unfortunately, I'm sorry, this is not a male podcast. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, that when you go into the gym, you're like, oh my God, everybody's staring at me. So what, you know, and it's easier said than done. It means mm. day one you walk around the gym. You don't work out. You don't have to work out. Walk in there for five minutes, go in your best apparel, get yourself into the moon, whatever mantra that you have to embrace, you do that. And then when you feel comfortable, not like this, oh, okay, on day five, I have to. Take those restrictions, take those expectations and throw it out the window. You have to treat it like yoga. Yoga practice, you can go in one day and be incredibly strong. And then the next day you're shaky and wobbly. But as we say in yoga, if you're shaking, it's good because that's mm. growth. Mm. So look at any aspect of fitness or in your life and find a way to embrace it as such. Because sometimes we are so, like, I hate to say it, as much as I love my social media account and I love my followers, sometimes people look at me and my journey and they're constantly comparing themselves and saying, mm -hmm. oh my God, you're so beautiful, you're so strong, I wish I can be like that. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm this, I'm that. And I'm like, stop the negative self-talk. Mm -hmm. I stop them right there in their tracks and they're like, I wanna be like you. And I always tell them, be better than me. Mm be better than me use me as a muse as much as you see um that you see possible use the people that inspires you almost like a vision board use us as a muse and once you have it down make it your own i love it mm. that's it Amen. i love it 
Well, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so Latoya is now Myrna's muse. So I was going to say. Say, I'm saying. Well, you know, my, you know having uh, children, right? So I was going to say um, that my son used to tell me, uh, and he still tells me, even though he's 15, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Right? So for, for me, that um, what that means to me is that, you know, you start where you start. Right. Again, like just like Latoya said, you might see people on Instagram or whatever, and they're um, engaged in their own journeys. Um, and I actually wrote about this for Runner's World in the mm. April issue about about um, creating your own fitness narrative and, and yes. owning your own journey. Because really, your journey is your own. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Right. And so you're going to start wherever you start. And, you, and we have to be okay with that. So if you start from a place where you haven't, ever worked out or you haven't worked out in a long time accept it and then move on because if you don't accept it then you cannot move on um so you know if that means that you're only you're only doing you can only run for 10 seconds you can run for 10 seconds Mm -hmm. and that's better than not running at all or that's better than not moving or not getting off the couch so um so know that you know there are training plans out there that say you have to do something or whatever and you and and you can compete be completely flexible with yourself. Make sure that um, you are okay with yourself. Um, I mean, that, I think that's part of the part of anybody's um, fitness journey or any or anything. Um, you have to be okay with yourself. You have to own yourself, and you have to acknowledge that you know you are an individual person um, with individual goals and dreams and individual ways of doing things. And that's okay. That is that is perfectly fine. And then once you own that, then you can move on and then you can progress. Well, first of all, thank you for both being all of our muses. Thank you for helping people accept who they are, where they are, and moving forward with what they have. Because that's all it is. It's all it's about, right, ladies? Amen. Preach the word. And it's about taking <laughs> selfies and doing Snapchat or Instagram stories, yes. which LaJoya <laughs> might be doing right now. <laughs> all right, everybody, over and out. Another rousing episode of Run This Bye. World. It's a wrap. The first 100 episodes are in the bag and properly commemorated. I'm so proud of this podcast and all of the incredible guests that have so beautifully put themselves out there openly, honestly, and with such vulnerability to give all of you even a tiny glimpse of a new way to look at this world because in the end, We are not alone, and that's the point. All right, then. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.